It's the middle of January and there are already like three big games on the horizon. Are you ready for this? Just personally speaking, I don't think I'm ready for this. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. We've got a little bit more time before the big January games come out, so we're answering some of your questions about casual collection games, monetization, and little things in games that we find annoying. Let's get into it. I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Maddie Myers. And I'm Jason Schreier. Hello. Hello there. Hello. It's us. Here we are. It is us once again. Back clicking again. our way through January. The triplets, someone in the mailbag, <laughs> yeah, as we call us the I triplets, which cute. I sort of enjoyed. We get the, the clickers, the triple mm-hmm. clickers. Yeah, you spoiled, you spoiled the intro of a future of, of this podcast and a future mailbag entry in this podcast you spoiled mm. for us. So like when you have Kirk. triplets, Jason, um, and you reveal the triplets that you've had, is that part yes. of it? Mm, yes, well. it is. Okay. I'm sorry for spoiling that. <laughs> I just thought it was kind of a cute thing for someone to call us. It's okay. I mean, I guess I forgive you. That's that's good. We can move forward in uh, with clear eyes, eyes wide open, clear hearts. <laughs> Can't lose. Yeah. Full full eyes. <laughs> Can't lose. Can't lose. This is going great. This episode is going great, and uh, that's because we're professional podcasters who are entirely supported by our listeners. We love doing this. And uh, we love all of you for supporting us while we do it. If you would like to support the creation of Triple Click and support creator-owned media and the Maximum Fun Network in general, you can become a member of Maximum Fun at MaximumFun.org slash join. And if you do that, you get access to bonus episodes of our podcast and all the other podcasts on this network. But our podcast, I mean, that's the one you want. That's the one you're listening to right mm-hmm. now. That's the real, that's like the steak at the all-you-can-eat buffet. Like you're going right. for the money food, the triple click section. <laughs> it's true. The you got to just get the, the meat. Hmm, okay. Can't fill up on uh, all those side dishes, even if they're delicious. You gotta get the steak. No, you don't want you don't want like a plate that's just mashed potatoes. You want to no. go to the the guy when there's a guy carving off like a giant <gasps> hunk of meat. Oh, that's you want to go want. in right when they're fresh off the carve, and that's mm-hmm. what our bonus ups are like. <laughs> it is. Somebody sprinkled salt on them. I kind of sometimes do want a whole plate of mashed potatoes, but that's just me. Anyways, you get bonus <laughs> episodes. We did the most recent one was on Star Wars Andor. We are going to do one this month where we go over our favorite ones more thing of last year. So we're just going to talk about a bunch of different things from the year that are not games that we loved. We did this last year as well. We're going to follow a similar format, and that'll be really fun. That'll be up in a couple of weeks, week and a half or something. And we get you get one every month if you become a member as a thank you from us to you for supporting us making this show. So that is MaximumFun.org slash join. Become a member. One more thing, not to be confused with one more thing, which we do at the end of the show. <laughs> An additional announcement. How about that? An Love additional it. announcement. As we mentioned last week, we are doing a live show, and now the three of us are here to say, Yay. we're doing a live show. How excited are the two of you excited as well? I'm oh very God, excited. I can't wait. I'm excited. I'm, so excited. I'm nervous, Finally, yes. but mostly excited. Excited it's to see the listeners. Be awesome. IRL. It is very exciting. Uh, I know a lot of listeners are excited as well. It's been very cool to see how stoked people are. This will be our first live show ever. It's going to be May 18th, which is a Thursday at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York, which is a venue that uh, that the three of us have recorded it at before. Many yeah, years you said ago. this was the first time ever, and that is well, true. It's the first time for, for Triple, Triple Click. Click. Yeah, but technically, we did a show at the Bell House as split screen. But yes, who can remember? But it's that? The, but it's Triple Click's first live show ever, and I think that's that is, right. That is 
both true and also feels true. I mean, that was so long ago. That was before the pandemic. Yeah. That was another age. The important thing is May 18th, Thursday at the Bell House in Brooklyn, we're going to be live on stage doing an episode of Triple Click. It'll be a live show. There will be audience participation. There might even be some music. Who knows? We're still figuring <laughs> it out. And one other thing, for anyone who can't make it, we there will be digital tickets. So there's going to be a digital aspect of this where you can watch live along online. And of course, also, if you can't do any of that, we'll put the episode in the feed like usual. So you'll still get to hear it um, even if you can't attend. So yeah, we're very excited about that. There's a link with more info down in the show notes. All right, it's a mailbag. It's time to open the mailbag. Jason, take us away. All right, we got some listener questions to get to today. That's right. This week we are doing an episode of Burning Questions. They hot, are hot, on hot. fire. The questions are, are so <laughs> freaking hot right out of the mailbag. Um, just a reminder to anyone who wants to send in questions for the show, you can reach us at tripleclick at maximumfun.org. As always, these are all real emails from real <laughs> listeners as far as we know what is this normal gossip they've all been anonymized but they're real questions from the real world (laughs) from a variety of time periods um i think it's actually like an old i think it's an old bill simmons thing that he he used to do that anyway um Mm. all right let's go uh around the room and everyone can read in order maddie why don't you yeah the room that all three of us are in together Mm -hmm. i'll start on one side of the room from tyler who writes Hello, Triple Click crew. First time, long time, and all that. I've been thinking lately about content filters in games. I feel like when I was a kid, content filters were more common and allowed you to remove blood or even profanity from a game. I remember in games like Jet Force Gemini, you could even change the color of the blood to make it less gruesome. I have a real struggle with gore in games. Violent images really stick with me and have a negative impact on me. When The Last of Us 2 came out, I was hoping it would include a gore filter like the original did, but I was disappointed, and I had to look away on all of Kratos' brutal finishers in God of War 2018. What are your thoughts about content filters in games? Do they betray the artistic vision of a game to remove blood or profanity? Should there be more of them in games? And along with that, why do so many modern games pride themselves on having detailed internal anatomy just so you can see an enemy's insides all over the ground after you kill them? <laughs> I'm, it, it cracks me up to imagine like the artist at the game studio who is like, no, we cannot have a gore filter. It really just crushes me to, it removes, it, it tears away way in my artistic integrity to be able to mm-hmm. tone down the blood that I painstakingly crafted <laughs> in this game. But then again, I mean, like Quentin Tarantino might say that. So why shouldn't a video game artist say that? It's an interesting question. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know The Last of Us 1 had a gore filter. So I'm learning that from Tyler here. I, I obviously didn't use it, uh, but that's too mm. bad. The second one doesn't. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that either. Wait, this is an interesting question. Kind of a multi-tiered one, right? Like there are a bunch of different ways you can come at it. One is that generally I think it's probably preferable if someone creating art is the one making the decision to put that kind of a filter on rather than having it imposed on them. So I'd say that's a worthwhile distinction to make. Yeah. Yeah. And well, so also, I mean, this really calls back to the early days of video games when games were actually censored. Like, um, I always bring this up, but uh, like alcohol getting changed into like juice. Um, I think Final Fantasy VI, which we all played, you guys might remember, there's a part where you're playing as Locke and you have to go steal cider for a dude. Like, that is not cider. That is supposed to be like some, I don't know if it's hard alcohol or like wine or something, but that is not cider. It was just turned into cider to get by Nintendo's filters back in the day. So right. um, hmm. it definitely is 
or at least was a censorship issue, but it's also, and, and obviously that, that was also the case for some gore stuff, although Mortal Kombat got away with releasing on, on Super Nintendo. Um, but it's interesting to think of as also something that can like make a game more accessible for people. Mm-hmm. Well, right. And that's, I think that's the sort of the way that I tend to come at it, at least as someone who creates things like, for example, Strong Songs. I don't curse on that show and it's a family friendly show. And I know a lot of people listen with their kids. And I am a person who curses when he talks. Sometimes I find curse words to be sometimes a delightful color for a, <laughs> for a language, but I don't need to use it. And I make that decision. I sort of weigh the pros and the cons. And I can see someone creating a video game making the same decision. Um, one example that comes to mind is the game Grounded, the sort of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids style game. That has a content filter for spiders. I think it's yeah, just for spiders. For I haven't played the game. Yeah. Uh, right. Yep. Which is also something that has been modded into Skyrim, similar thing, where the spiders are turned into something else. I think in Skyrim, one mod famously turns them into bears. I think in Grounded, it just removes the legs and eyes and just turns them into eventually like yeah. kind of little smiley faces or something. It does a variety of things. There's like an actual spectrum of spider removal that you right. can do in Grounded, which is really cool. Uh, we have at least one arachnophobe on staff at Polygon, so I'm, I'm very familiar with the yes. nuances of this particular mod. Uh, I thought it was really neat that they included so many layers to it uh, depending on how scary you think spiders are well it's interesting the spider question is like um that is removing something that is a common fear or common phobia to make it so more people can play the game um but it also the spiders are not integral to the story or integral to the way that the game makes you feel whereas one might argue certainly that like blood and gore in something like the last of us could be integral to the game i don't know if last of us really needs it i don't know if god of war really needs as much blood and gore as it does um but there's a little bit more of an argument to be made that, like, okay, for you, the player, to really feel the weight of all this violence that Kratos does or whatever, then maybe you need to see the blood and gore. And I don't know. I don't really have, like, a strong opinion on this one way or another. I just think it's an interesting question to explore. It is. I'd say, you know, th- it's all on the same spectrum. I mean, when I think of the Shalob sequence, say, in Lord of the mm-hmm. Rings, if they replaced Shalob with a golden retriever... <laughs> Because some people are afraid of huge spiders, you know, it, it does kind of remove the horror and the impact of that scene in the same way that editing out, you know, some of the more violent things in The Last of Us Part Two would make it a little more confusing if once Ellie becomes this broken person having done these horrible things, right. if you don't see them, it mm-hmm. does remove it. And I could see either Peter Jackson or Neil Druckmann saying... You know, well, no, we can't change that because this is the intention of this. So mm-hmm. I, I, I see it's all kind of content filters, different kinds of content filters. And I guess, yeah, my main thought is just if a creator wants to create filters, it can be a type of accessibility. It's more work. It's You're asking them to do, you know, more and more and more. I mean, I'm sure that spider filter took work mm-hmm. in Grounded and coming up with a way to make the story work. Like each time someone does that, that does require extra labor. And there comes a point where maybe they just can't do it and they have to say, look, we're just making this one thing and it has to be what it is. But all of that is like an interesting artistic thing that is sort of creators making their own decisions about their art, which is then very different from, you know, say a a console company saying you can't have any blood in our games and we're just going to change it. Or a government saying you can't have any homosexual relationships in this game. So we're just going to make you remove them all or like change the way that you describe them because like that's not allowed in our country. So like those two things feel notably different to me and I'm more interested in an okay with 
the one than the other. Yeah. yeah. Who, who's the, the important part of this is who's making the decision ultimately Precisely. to do that. And actually taking that one step further a little bit, this is a little bit off base, but like in terms of um, when people complain about censorship in localization of content, um, I think oftentimes uh, people are like, oh my God, I can't believe you replaced this like Japanese pervy joke with like a US thing, like a US centric thing or something that would be more accommodating to US gamers. But I actually think localizing unlike like a publisher releasing a game on a console localization is has its own set of like artistic merits and questions and challenges and so a localizer deciding hey i want to interpret this another way is just as genuine and artistic thing as like the developers deciding what they want to do so that i think is a little bit different than like Mm -hmm. what you described kirk where some some third party is coming in and saying no this is not allowed in our country or this is not allowed on our console Right, since localizers are a part of the development team. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And especially if that localizer is changing something to be a pervy joke that Americans would understand culturally better. But <laughs> exactly. they're still right. keeping yeah. the specific kind of pervy that <laughs> exactly. this audience will appreciate. Right. I wouldn't yeah. call that censorship. Like in, in some cases, people might use the word censorship when what they really just mean is that it's been changed in some way. And exactly. it may have been changed in a way that makes it more easily understood by people in another country because they don't have the cultural reference to whatever joke is being made. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention here is that the Bayonetta games have an extremely funny approach to censorship that I don't know if you two are familiar with, uh, such that it's extremely over the top. Like the cigars become bubblegum cigars Mm -hmm. and like lots of things become candy and ice cream cones and like it's it's supposedly nonviolent, but really it's just a way that you could play Bayonetta and still have your kid around and just be like, yeah, they're just fighting with ice cream cones and bubblegum and all these other things. But it's still got that Bayonetta sense of humor where everything is extremely cartoonish and flamboyant and you're still getting that sense of it. I'm not sure what inspired them to make that change, but regardless of that, it always felt like the implementation of it was on brand for the type of comedy that that game is trying to achieve. Yeah, there have been other games, too, I'm forgetting which ones, who implement a bleep filter or a violence Mm -hmm. filter where that kind of blurred out black bar goes over violence. And that can be very funny. That is another thing that's probably a lot of work to implement. But then having someone curse someone else out and it's all bleeped can actually be funnier in the right circumstance because you fill in the blanks. And if the bleep goes on long enough, you're like, what on earth could they be saying? You know, it has that kind (laughs) of humor, which there have been games that have done that. And that can be funny, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Kirk, I just want to say real quick, I really appreciate that you make a podcast without cursing and I've been trying not to curse in this podcast since uh, September when I started taking nice. how's it been going well since when I started taking my kid to school in the morning and I listened to a podcast while driving her to school <laughs> and every time I'm listening to a podcast and they like drop an f-bomb or something I just wince and she's not old enough to like really understand that oh, yet or know what the significance is but like exactly <laughs> exactly so I do appreciate curse free uh, curse free podcast no I hear you it's a kind of a fun challenge as a podcaster not to get sidetracked but it's a thing i think about sometimes too. no as much a, as, as fun as it can be to curse it's also mm-hmm. like it can not be. that hard not to <laughs> yeah it feels it's funny i'm playing a game that i'll talk more about next week but you can probably guess what it is um and i actually really enjoy it but the main character just like curses every other 
word and it's so superfluous and unnecessary and man we used to talk about this at Kotaku all the time too like when people wanted to put curses in headlines they're so much more Mm. powerful when you only do one like once a month or like once every like like when they're rare that's when they're more powerful when you're seeing them every other sentence it's just like man you sound like a teenager who just learned how to curse in the first place Mm -hmm. it's true you have to judicious use of curse words is important Mm -hmm. exactly Mm -hmm. Um, okay, next question. Uh, Maddie, you read the last one. Kirk, you want to do this next one? Sure. This comes from Grace. Grace writes, Hi, team. I've found it harder lately to get into games due to how many mechanics are piled into new games, especially indie ones. Have you all noticed this one, too? And if so, do you think it's to the detriment of video games? Um, hmm. I'll start, I guess. I've noticed this not really necessarily with indie games, but definitely with games. I think... There's just a lot of stuff in most games these days, and I do think, I don't know if it's to the detriment of video games, but there is something refreshing about playing a game that doesn't have a million different systems interlocking, where you're not learning how to play an optional, you know, tabletop game that you walk (laughs) around and build your deck to play, that Uh you don't have to both, you know, I don't know, learn how to, like a whole complicated leveling and crafting system on top of the regular gameplay and combat on top of the branching narrative on top of whatever else. Like Vampire Survivors, one of my favorite games of last year, is literally just move around in a circle and kill all the monsters. And there is something nice about that that I think even the biggest games would do well to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the problem with that, and yeah, I actually, I actually, I'm not sure what Grace means by indie ones, but AAA yeah. games, the big budget games, definitely are like one thing after on top of another. Um, the crafting stuff, especially the equipment stuff, especially because so much of it is like you have to dedicate this brain space and this time for a system that is like that will make you five percent better at dodging <laughs> fire attacks or something like that. Yeah. Right? And so it's like these incremental, like nonsensical things that I uh, and they're so minor and like insignificant to your enjoyment of the game that I usually just ignore it. And I right. think the the system when a system is just like easy to ignore, it probably doesn't need to be in your game. And when when there's like uh, crafting systems are fine and stuff, and, and equipment systems are fine, but like it's if it's not actively contributing to the gameplay in a way that makes you feel like you want to engage in it, then does it really need to be there? Um, I've had that thought about. Uh, a lot of games recently where it's just like man yeah. why is it just giving me these more uh, like I, I it just feels like they're hitting a checklist of like this is what every AAA game has to have mm-hmm. it's one of my very few complaints about marvel's midnight suns is that there's just one too many ways to craft an item or object that you could use mm-hmm. in that game and i'm used to it now because i'm like 75 hours into that game and almost <laughs> done but for the first 10 hours or so i was like do I really have to go to different stations, like different desks around this huge room to click on something to make this kind of card and then take that card over to this other thing and then turn it in to upgrade this ability? And then also I need to open up my character select screen and make sure everybody's cards are correct. And oh, one of them needs to be upgraded. So I need to walk my character over to this other station to upgrade this ability. It, it's all second nature to me now. Like as soon as the hunter wakes up in the morning, she goes and does all of her chores and I don't even think about it. But it, it's it's too many chores, folks. Well, like so, it's, it's too much. <laughs> so yes, so Maddie, I agree with you that that's tedious. But at least the stuff you're doing is meaningful to the gameplay, right? Like yes. In- 
I don't know, Horizon, which I don't mean to pick on Horizon because I feel like we've been pretty mean to that game over the past few months. But like Horizon, you can dedicate all this time to something and it's like 10% boost in trapping abilities when targeting specific kinds of enemies or whatever. It's just like nonsense. At least in Marvel's Midnight Suns, when you're doing all that stuff, it's like, okay, this is worthwhile because I'm getting these awesome new cards or like upgrading this card in a way where it'll actually feel meaningful when I'm playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, God of War had this problem too. Though, having played a ton of Midnight Suns, I do think that game suffers from uh, system bloat, especially once you start crafting. Like, you have to craft blueprints to craft cards because you need duplicate cards <laughs> yeah. to upgrade the cards. It gets and, like, really there, silly over time. There does come a point where I'm like, I've been doing this for too long. Like you said, I was totally Midnight Suns pilled and played so much <laughs> with it. It all just was like, I was like, whatever, I don't care because I love this game. Yeah. But there were definitely times, especially at the Forge, where I'm in neck deep in menus trying to craft another i need a perp another purple thing wait how many of these do i need so that i can make this blade card so i can duplicate like once i'm hitting the stage where i'm writing down on a piece of paper which characters (laughs) need to have which abilities leveled up Mm -hmm. i think that at that point you have too many systems i have officially hit that point because i'm at the stage where i'm just max leveling everyone before the final boss fight simply because i don't want the game to be over yet maybe the experience of max leveling a character is never supposed to be fun and I'm complaining about the stupidest thing ever but hey who cares I still think it should just be ever so slightly easier to do that's all this is this is also known as the period of the game where I learned that Ghost Rider is really good (laughs) which I didn't realize for most of the Because, you know, you kind of pick your favorites. They're all really viable, but, yeah, he he kicks ass if you know what to do with him. Mm -hmm. All All right, next question. This is from Adam. Adam says, oh, this is the the email that Kirk spoiled earlier. Adam (laughs) says... I thought you said they didn't sound like you'd forgiven me, by the way, uh, that you said that. uh, Hello, triplets. Wow, what did he call us? Wow, triplets. He called us triplets. (laughs) Wow, that's that's so 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 funny. That's such a funny new way to to refer to us. If only we hadn't heard heard that that before. before. Hello, triplets. My sister is a quote-unquote hardcore gamer with a quote-unquote casual wife whom she is deli- delighted and enjoys games at all. The I love sort of the things- implication that it's a casual wife. I, I know Adam means in terms of gaming as opposed to the wife aspect is the part that's casual, but yes. it's it's a great way of phrasing it. Anyway, A casual continue. wife. <laughs> yeah. Casual wife, casual life. The sort of things her wife enjoys tend to be collectathons, ideally games where one can play on easy as long as she doesn't enjoy as she doesn't enjoy combat. Having mastered Spyro and Ratchet in almost all their incarnations, she hungers for more. Do you have any <laughs> recommendations? I have one. I have a good recommendation. Yeah, hey, hit a us. game called A Short Hike. Mm. That's a good Cute one. Game. That's a really good game that is basically a collectathon. It's not a collectathon quite like, you know, Ratchet and Clank or Spyro, but but it is a game where you you run around and collect things and it is very super chill and also really awesome and that's my recommendation. Good rec. Mine mm-hmm. is Super Mario Odyssey, the ultimate collectathon. There's no better mm. collectathon than Super Mario Odyssey. Yeah, I have a couple, which I think I've mentioned before as some of uh, my girlfriend Dina's favorites. Uh, she also likes collectathons, although she's a little more hardcore about the collectathons. So I'm, I'm trying to split the difference. Oh, so you here. have a hardcore wife, not a casual <laughs> wife. Yeah, we're both hardcore, but about nice. different kinds of genres. Um, so one of them is I know I've mentioned before, it's called My Time at Porsche. It's a life sim. So you can walk around town 
at Porsche, the place where you live. You're you're like an engineer girl with a cool dad who teaches you how to build stuff and you collect things all around the world and there's a castle and there's a bunch of social mechanics. Dina ignores all of those because she only likes the collecting part. So all she does <laughs> is collect things and fight monsters to get more resources to build engineering <laughs> items. Sure. So that's something you can do in that game that she finds endlessly entertaining and you don't have to talk to anyone if you don't want to. Um, and my other recommendation that she's very into is this game Strange Horticulture, which mm. if you've got uh, gardening as an interest, as part of uh, what you're into, then this is like the perfect collecting plus tending itch where you are you have a collection of plants, but they're all fictional plants and you have to figure out how to care for each of them. You're also like a witch character, I think. I think these are all magical plants, and that's sort of part nice. of the fiction of the world. Strange horticulture. Exactly. So there's some puzzle solving, but also some tending and collecting energies happening there. And uh, she's very into that cocktail. So that might work for mm. your your friend, your casual wife. <laughs> <laughs> friend with a casual wife. Uh, cool. Good suggestions. Kirk. Uh, sorry, Maddie, you're up next. Cool. Okay, this is from Benjamin, who writes, Hello, Kirk, Maddie, and Jason. Who is holding which controller in your show art? Benjamin, you're not the first to ask. <laughs> so I just want to say, well, I just want to, I just want to point out that uh, Kirk, for some reason, thought that we had a canon answer to this. And Maddie I thought and I we were had like, come what? up with it. Maybe I don't we know did. If we had canonized it on the show, but I feel like I think maybe some listener or someone was like, I think I know who's holding which one. Uh, okay. And they uh-huh. just said I, that theory. I thought that you had just canonized it in your head and never told us. You were just <laughs> maybe. <laughs> it's certainly possible. So what's the what's the what's... answer that you had thought it was? So I thought for whatever reason that Jason was holding the Super Nintendo controller, which is I believe in the upper right. Maddie is holding the Xbox controller, which is in the upper left, and I am holding the PS4 controller in the center. And that is how this show looks to me based on the Zoom call right now. So maybe that's part of why I think of it that way. I also associate Jason a little bit with the Super Nintendo just because, I don't know, you've been over and I watched you play uh, Super Mario World and and some other Super Nintendo games, so I kind mm-hmm. of associate with that with you. I don't know, Maddie. You don't actually strike me as Xbox much of an Xbox gamer. Yeah, you in, were, in my you early were, right? days. That was the, you also the, often talk talk about games being on Game Pass because that's you true. Use Game Pass it's a lot, true. So. Yeah, Dante's Inferno, for example. I I think yeah. I also was the person who uh, helped with the look of an Xbox controller when we were designing that logo. I think I was the one who had one handy. I might be, that might be an invented memory. Mm. No, but it could be. That could be why, Kirk, you might think that. Because at that time period, my Xbox controller was the main controller that I used for everything uh, as my default preferred controller. But now, unfortunately, it's been replaced by the PS5 controller. Uh, pour one out for my Xbox controller. <laughs> I'm not really using it anymore. Yeah, since I don't play PC games anymore, I've never really used an Xbox controller for anything. I used to use the Elite on PC, but now I just stream everything to Steam Deck. Yeah, that was what I was using all the time until that sweet next-gen haptic feedback entered my hands. And I was like, this Mm -hmm. is the most comfortable controller I've ever used. Sorry, Microsoft. Can I sidetrack us for a second and (laughs) just put a wish into the universe, which is a wish I've seen many articulate, but I'm going to articulate it on our show. And that is that Valve releases a new Steam controller that's basically the Steam Deck, but just as a controller. 
I would buy one in a heartbeat. I would just love Do you for want it to the little pads that were on the original Steam controller that they put out no. years and years ago? Do you remember well, that I controller? Mean, I do. Um, yeah, I mean, if they want to replace the trackpads on the Steam Deck with those, that's fine. But I, I'm fine with the Steam Deck trackpads. I like those a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, just literally everything that's on a Steam Deck as a controller. This has been extremely widely requested. I think Valve has even said, yeah, we're, we're considering it, even though we can only do so much. But man... That'd be cool. And then I think we'd have to change our show art. Mm-hmm. We'd ta- to have just to talk to Tom and be like, Steam can you give, make us yeah. some new art? Yeah, with three, three <laughs> Steam, Steam controller twos. That'd be funny. <laughs> love it. Love it. Um, so there's the answer, I guess. Um, <laughs> I guess. I, actually, no, that's right. Is, that's not final. Sure. That was just sort of what I think. It sounds good. I it mean, works. yeah. I, I don't think there is a canon I think answer. It's I like the I... DualShock 4. It's, it's a fine controller. Kirk, your controller, we have to imagine it's a DualShock with under buttons. Otherwise, of course. It. It's a scuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, okay, well, there's the answer. Let's get to the next question. Kirk, this is you. Sure. Dave writes, hi, Triple Click crew. How would you fix free-to-play monetization? This easy. is inspired by Marvel. <laughs> yeah, this is an easy one. This is inspired by, Mar- by Marvel Snap, which I have been sampling. If you're not familiar, the main appeal of buying the $10 season pass is that it grants you immediate access to a powerful new card that enables a new strategy. In theory, this is a fair value proposition. Is this new card worth $10 to the consumer or not? But that's not what's actually on offer, because in addition to the new card, there's all these extra rewards you can unlock provided you level up the pass. Predatory mechanics designed as benefits to the player. It doesn't need to be that way. Free-to-play monetization could be more ethical. All we need is appropriate regulation. And then he lists some suggestions and and the like. Yeah, this is a tough one. Um, I mean, I have some thoughts, but... One, one of the two of you go first. How would you fix free-to-play monetization? Yeah, well, so first, just to zoom out for a second, free-to-play oh, exists... Zoom in out. Free-to-play <laughs> exists for good reason at this point, which is that people, especially on mobile, people will not pay for games. They mm-hmm. will just download games and if they're not like they're they're if they're interested, if they're hooked, they might pay once they're already in the game, but for the most part people will not pay for games on mobile. And we actually saw that kind of um backfire on Nintendo, which um I believe had with Super Mario Run, they like they tried either they tried to sell the game or they like let you download it for free, but it was only the first three levels or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that sounds then, right. Yeah. Then you had to pay for it, and it didn't seem it, it seemed to really uh, be a bait and switch for people. Um, people don't it's want fun that game, on though. mobile. Like this I did is like a, it was fun. This is an <laughs> ecosystem where people don't play pay for games. So like my solution, my instinct would be like, man, just give us an option to just like pay for the game, and that's the end of it. But that's not what people want on mobile. Um, and then the other question here is that like, so there's all sorts of studies and all sorts of like psychologists and economists who, economists who like delve into this world of free to play. And there are a couple of different thought schools of thought. One is to try to get everybody to pay a little bit. Another is to assume that most people are not going to pay and make it really appealing for a few people, the whales quote unquote of the world to spend a lot. And essentially subsidize the rest of your player base. Diablo Immortal is a good example of like a game that appeals <laughs> that to whales. The, definitely the most ethical way to do this. Yeah. Uh, yes. By which yes, I mean yes, the yes. least ethical <laughs> way to do this. What? So yeah. So so how can free to play monetization be more ethical? 
Um, one immediate thought I had was that I don't think battle passes are a terrible idea. I think with Marvel Snap, there's been some controversy over like the length of the passes and like what it, what they have to offer and how, how much you're actually paying for. Right. I think it the needs to be a little, is, yeah. little consistent in terms of pricing, in terms of like how much you're spending per month or whatever, per week. Um, but maybe that's one solution. I don't know. Do you guys have any ideas on how to fix this, uh, <laughs> this ecosystem? I, yeah. I mean, that's... That's tough. Maddie, go ahead. You have some ideas. I have some thoughts, but I don't have ideas. Uh, sure. I, I really don't. It's more that Epic Games has some ideas. I was just going to mention that I feel like Fortnite's Battle Pass system is one of the best ones that I know of. <laughs> and it's always amazing to me when I see Overwatch 2 implementing just a completely different and far less popular uh, system of monetizing its its game and its battle pass. I know those are two very different games. I don't want to get too far in the weeds about What's the a team shooter big, versus what Fortnite does. But basically, I mean, Fortnite does a lot of partnerships and they earn money that way by partnering with specific brands. But they also do a battle pass that is entirely cosmetic and revolves around popular characters and different outfits and of course, dances. So it's 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 really just that it's entirely cosmetic, but also there are social rewards for using those cosmetics in the game because of the way mm. that the game works. So I think part of it is Fortnite's designers knowing how people play the game and what kinds of social behaviors are rewarded. And one of those things is costumes and certain characters and like meme-worthy moments that you, you can create. Not every game is going to be able to include dances, but... I, I also can look at things like Overwatch 2, and I'm not an expert at this, but I still can think to myself, there must be something better to monetize here that is based on what people actually want and how they play the game and isn't just based on um, more unfulfilling monetization practices where people feel like they're getting ripped off. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, yeah. The, the word predatory is interesting. Or it's it's I, I think of that word alongside the word manipulative, I suppose, mm-hmm. when it comes to this kind of thing, because I don't have any I don't use a lot of battle passes and I don't really in, engage with a lot of microtransactions in games. So, you know, I, I only know about this stuff from learning about it. I remember I remember when we talked about Diablo and we talked about um, Diablo Immortal, learning about how that system worked and being kind of gobsmacked by how manipulative it was and how predatory it felt. And it's it seems to me that. If you're just offering someone a straight one-to-one transaction, that seems like the most straightforward way to do this that doesn't leave anyone feeling bad. Like, pay this money and you get these extra, you know, this extra area that you can go play in. And then that can only become dicey in a competitive game where it's like, pay this money and you get this new card or this new ability that makes you more competitive against other people. We've talked about that on the show before. And it seems to me that it always gets dicey and people start feeling weird whenever game design gets involved in the commerce part of the game. Because games, like any game that where you level up, you have to put in a certain amount of time, you have to unlock new abilities, and then you gotta, you know, that ability shows you a new ability that, oh, you're gonna get this ability if you just play another five hours and you really gotta get it. I mean, it's similar to the crafting system you were talking about, Jason, where in Horizon or in God of War, I'm kind of like, well, I can't wait to upgrade my axe again so that I can get some cool new ability so I'm going to kind of keep playing. It's the carrot that keeps you going. And that's that's manipulative. It's not a it, we're happy to be manipulated if we're having fun playing the game, but it is a thing that game designers do to manipulate players into wanting to play more. So, when you attach money to that, suddenly it's like 
you know, you're buying this thing and then you have to keep playing it. And then, you know, they're, they're slowing you down. So you have to pay money to speed up. You could get the thing faster if you paid for it or you bought this thing. So you might as well keep using it. It kind of hooks you into the game because you feel like a sunk cost thing with how much money you've put in or looking at Diablo Immortal. I don't even remember all the particulars of that, but that's the thing where like you get one thing for free and when you plug it in, it suddenly shows you that if you just had four more of the things, then you could get way better rewards. And so then, well, and you know, you can actually just buy four more right now for five dollars and the whole thing is built to manipulate you into spending money and that is where the word predatory starts to feel appropriate because you're being preyed upon like you're being manipulated and i think all of that stuff is just it's all in that same realm it's all feels ethically weird and the more intense the intensely the game does it the more problematic it feels. So that's the distinction that I make anyways, is between just offering someone something they can buy, especially something cosmetic that's just fun, they like the game, get a new hat, versus all of this designed, manipulative manipulative stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so so Marvel Snap, I'm not actually super familiar with the microtransactions in that. I haven't played enough. But right, Hearthstone, which is uh, a game designed by some of the same people um, at Blizzard, I am familiar with that, and that is more akin to a traditional collectible card game like nobody's complaining about microtransactions in physical magic the gathering you go out and you buy packs and you get random collections of cards and that's how you build your deck and hearthstone is similar in some ways in that you're you're getting new packs you can buy packs from the shop and and open them and hope you get some good cards intact um and i i think that's generally accepted as long as the booster packs the card packs feel fair and it feels like you you have a fair shot at the game even if you're not spending tons and tons of money yeah Um, I would just interject to say that I do categorize those games differently for myself from a game where you just get the game in the box and then you play against one another and it's pure mechanics versus a game where he who spends $500 on cards every month probably has a better deck. Like those games are different to me and I do think of that as like it's a different kind of system and it is a little bit you know it's kind of manipulative it's rewarding people for spending a lot of money mm-hmm. yeah well so more akin to what you're talking about maybe is something that's character rotation based a league of legends or a hero of the storm maybe overwatch is similar mm-hmm. and it will it, it will be similar at some point as they start adding more and more new characters um and that is a game where you can spend money to get new characters and um, in theory, they should all be balanced so that like one character isn't just going to dominate the game. But uh, uh, at the end of the day, if you want to play as everybody, you have to spend money. Um, mm-hmm. And there are different ways of doing this. There are all sorts of like rotations that these games use to make it feel fair, to make it feel like you can try out different characters before you spend money on them and stuff like that. Um, but that's another game where like so far it hasn't felt super unethical. You don't. I mean, League of Legends is a good example of a game that I don't think is super unethical from a microtransaction point of view because there's a cap on how much you can spend. You can only spend so much on like to buy every character and skin and stuff in the game. Um, there's a finite amount. Right. You can't just keep spending over and over again on loot boxes or on just like um i don't know boosters to like make your 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 items better or whatever it is in the game i haven't haven't played very much league of legends (laughs) but uh uh when there's a cap on how much you can spend that helps it feel more ethical Mm -hmm. i think 
um, mm-hmm. when you can't actually have whales. But that would, of course, destroy the entire business model for a lot of these games. Yeah, <laughs> those are two good questions, right? Is like, can you spend an infinite amount of money on this? And these actually these questions are related. And the other one is, is there a random element? Like, are you just buying mm-hmm. a thing that maybe gives you what you want and maybe doesn't, or are you yeah. just giving them ten dollars to get the hero you want, which is a way more straight up transaction? Mm-hmm. And it's something that, as a fighting game player, I'm so used to having a set amount that you need to pay to get every single character and that has become socially normalized over time but I also remember at least in Mm -hmm. my memory the first time I experienced that I was really mad that you had to pay for Jill Valentine in Marvel vs. Capcom 3 that was my first Mm -hmm. moment of being really mad and being like I bought this game I should have every single character Um, but now it's just completely normal to have a fighting game come out and then have those characters be add-ons that you buy later. And so whenever I hear people complain about Overwatch 2 and the fact that you have to buy characters or play a lot to unlock characters, I'm like, well, but fighting games have been doing this for ages. So I'm not saying that's good or bad. It's just interesting how different genres eventually normalize certain patterns of monetization to the point where now I'm like, yeah, that's completely normal. But I was really angry about it in like 2011 or whenever the heck that was. I was infuriated. In Overwatch's case, it wasn't even that the genre normalized it. It was that the first game normalized it and trained you to think about the game in a certain way. And then the second game changed that. So that, I think, is what really peeved peeved some people. Speaking of peeves, let me read through this real question. We'll cover this one (laughs) real quick. Dunky Boo writes, I was wondering, what are the small details in games that can get on your nerves? For example, I hate it when games automatically change your weapon when you pick a new one up. Like, hey, just because it's new doesn't mean I immediately want to use it. Guys, what are your gaming peeves? I have one thought immediately, which is friggin' let me pause during (laughs) cutscenes. Marvel's Midnight Suns. I'm looking Marvel's at you. Midnight Suns. Oh. <laughs> and a corollary mean... to that. A corollary to that. Um, this is less common these days, but like sometimes it feels like you're gambling when you press the start button on whether yep. it'll pause or skip the cutscene automatically yes. for you. Right. That fortunately, most developers have changed that and made it so you have to like hold a button to really skip it, or you mm-hmm. pause it and then you have a skip option from there. Uh-huh. But there used to be a day when you press pause and it's a gamble, you and you're like, God, I hope this. This doesn't skip the cutscene, and sometimes <laughs> it would. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That gets on my nerves. Just to stay on that, um, I don't like it when games have multiple ways to skip dialogue, and then I'm confused about which one is applicable to each scenario. Midnight Suns <laughs> does a little bit of this, where you can skip certain kinds of conversations entirely, or you can skip line by line, and I'm sure it's just how the scenes are designed, but it has me clicking around like is this one i can skip i'm a fast reader what can i say mm-hmm. not to brag but if if no, i if i finish reading game. a line i'd like to continue please mm-hmm. and so also i need to be able to skip dialogue in games that's another just more general large pet peeve that i have the, that's a that's funny that makes me think of cyberpunk 2077 which i've been playing through and in that game you skip by pressing the crouch button mm. and while they have improved a lot of things about that game it, it plays pretty well now that it's still a weird thing where sometimes you're crouching and then <laughs> and you want to stand up because you're talking to someone and crouching and looking up at them. And then you go to stand up and you skip the line of dialogue and it does a kind of fast forward thing. Amazing. Or you're like just crouching like a weirdo because you want a conversation to end. Right. We've all been right. there, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
It's a known this social is, cue. Yeah, every every week when we record, you you nobody out there can see me, but you guys can see me just crouching up and down. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. come on, come on, Kirk, hurry up. Yeah, when we up. need to wrap it up and move on to the next segment. Yeah, yeah wrap it up. You see me crouching. <laughs> Let's just wrap it up, crouch, as we call it. Um, I have a couple. One is characters that interrupt whatever I'm doing to like grab my attention and talk to me. I think that's very annoying. Um, also overly panicky NPCs in open world games where I'm driving, like where they freak out and they jump out of the way when I'm like, I don't know, I was just driving down the street. I'm doing a pretty good job of driving. And they're like, oh my God. Or like, I wasn't even going to hit you. I remember that happening in Gotham Knights with somebody that I was like, not even going to hit. I was like, calm right. down, man. Like, I'm not that bad out. at this. It was Mafia 3 is the game that always sticks in my mind is the one where everyone is leaping out of the way all the time. Um, that's, that's pretty funny. A little funny. And, and Maybe it's because you're a mafioso. It doesn't have anything to do with your driving. Okay, I have right, some more. They see me coming. Oh, okay, I have some more. Um, when <laughs> when the pick something up button or like interact button is the same as the jump button and you're like jumping around trying to pick things up mm-hmm. or interact mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. That was unfortunate a button redundancy. Final Fantasy 15 was very problematic in that yes. regard. <laughs> yep. God. Um, Another one is in a shooting game when you're not when reloading like throws out the whole clip. So if you reload when you're partially full of yes. ammo, you're actually wasting ammo. Oh man, yeah. Um, I believe that's like an old school problem. Yeah, like, I don't think that's when relevant. It can for a be while. a like immersive thing. Like I think the Metro games might do that. There are some uh, games and some older, horror like games Stalker does will that. do that yep. too, where it's yep. like, oh, you, you only reload. have so much ammo, etc. If they're trying to encourage something really specific, that can work. But yeah, it can also be annoying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be annoying when it's more of like when it's less of like a conserving your ammo type of game and more of a like just mm-hmm. running and gunning type of game um, i have a million like interface i mean like oh, yeah, video, like pc graphics things i could be here we could be here forever I know. yes 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 um <laughs> yeah oh man so many things so many that'll things. be an, that'll be an episode we'll do someday about about user interface we should have had this be the first question and then just answered yeah, it for 45 minutes and just complain 45 minutes talking about that <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, now, now we're gonna have to do our own uh, UI transition uh, from one segment to another. So please uh, sit back and enjoy this loading screen while you wait for us to come back and bring you one more thing. Parenting, it's hard, but don't worry, you're not alone. Belly up to the low bar with one bad mother, and let us remind you that fine is good enough. They want to climb on different things. And how am I supposed to keep them both from dying? (laughs) There is a right way to do this. And if I can figure out that right way, I'm going to be a good parent. So that is not a thing. So join us each week and let us tell you that you are doing a good job. You can listen to One Bad Mother on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. This week on Bullseye, Tom Hanks as you've never heard him before. Mad. You moron. Thank you for the use of the turn signal. Way to use your blinker, idiot. That's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. And we are back for one more thing, Kirk, Maddie. It is time. Um, I'm going to go first real quick. Uh, so, uh, I'm, I'm, I've been playing this video game that I can't talk about until next week. So look forward to my thoughts on that next week. But for now, um, I've been pretty sick over the past week. I've had this really nasty cold and it's just been like, mm. I've hopped up on Dayquil and chicken soup that a month week. ago and it sucks. I hope you're feeling better. It really sucks. It's lasted way longer than any cold I've had before, which I assume yeah. is just like part of COVID and this new world we live in. But anyway, um, 
So pretty much every night after putting the kids to bed at like 7.30ish, I just go and lie down in my bed and I've been watching TV. And usually I just put on The Simpsons because The Simpsons is my go-to. Just like, I don't want to think, just zone out. Um, and after watching, usually I watch like season anywhere between season three and like 14 and just like just r- marathon it. But um, for whatever reason, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to jump ahead and like watch some new episodes, which I haven't watched. Um, I think a lot of people our age, millennials in their 30s, uh, probably haven't watched a lot of new Simpsons and probably are more familiar with the older stuff. Um, and some random thoughts um, are, well, really one random thought I wanted to share. I mean, first of all, I don't think it's that bad. Like there's some episodes that are just inter- just as entertaining as, as some of the older stuff are. But Marge Simpson's voice has changed drastically. And the reason for that I've, I've realized is, or I've learned, is that Julie Kavner, the voice actress, has just gotten older. I mean, they've been making the show for 33 years, 30, 30 something wow. years. No, 36 years. 1989, at this point. I guess. So. Okay, so 34 years. 34 like years that? at this Late point. Late 80s, yeah. Wow. And so uh, the, all the voice cast are getting old, getting up there. Um, and Julie Kavner's voice has kind of naturally changed at some point to become, I don't know, totally different. Like if you listen to a clip, if you go out and find a clip sure. of Marge Simpson in like 1993 versus today, you will hear a massive difference. And it is so unsettling to watch. Like I almost, I would almost rather it just be like a different voice actor entirely. Mm. It just sounds so off. And so it makes me kind of like, oh, I don't know. It makes me uncomfortable to watch new episodes of The Simpsons just because of just because of that. And it's sad. I feel bad. But that's how it is. Um, just an observation, an observation wow. on the Simpsons. This is just about the, the passage of time. It's funny. It's, it's the interesting thing about animation. It is. Well, is it's that in animation, thing. the characters don't get older, but the actors do get older. Wow. And as you get older, your voice changes. You know? Well, so Kirk, to that point, another weird thing is that now they just did an episode recently where like, it's like a weird musical episode where Kristen Bell is singing as Marge. Um, but they're talking about the Simpsons, Homer and Marge being in high school. And now they went to high school in 1990. I think whereas, I saw a time like, travel episode like that. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, like, in if you watch the old Simpsons, they went to high school in the 70s. Um, but mm-hmm. now <laughs> they graduated high school in 1999, like 2000, which is so weird. Uh, well, I read an essay that I think this was in the Atlantic somewhere, one of those, one of those prestige places about how the Simpsons family is no longer like representative of any kind of middle class family where like the dad right. works and the mom yeah. stays home and they have mm-hmm. a house and, and like they're able to afford going on vacations and stuff yeah. and how that was it's just like a relic from another time that makes the show a little bit more unusual to watch mm-hmm. it is yeah that is another strange element of it that like okay in 1991 you could maybe accept that like this this incompetent mm-hmm. dad this one family one income family has this humongous house and like is raising three well, kids well with like a union job or whatever at yeah, a, yeah, at yeah 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 you could maybe accept plan, that in yeah. 1991, but now it's like they have iPads and stuff and they're a modern family, but like living like that, it's very strange. Yeah, you're right. Um, but anyway, Marge's voice is really, has really thrown me off and um, <laughs> kind of immediately made me go back to older, older episodes of the show and stuff. Anyway, that's The Simpsons. Maddie, what's your one more thing? So mine is a movie called The Fablemans, which is described by many as a Steven Spielberg biopic, but I don't know that that's quite the right way to put it. He's been very transparent about the fact that much of it is not true and is invented, but mm-hmm. is based on 
some aspects of his own life. You're telling and, me that a show, a movie called The Fable Mins is invented? Uh-huh. And it's not called <laughs> The Spielbergs. Yeah. It's, uh, and the, the main character who's the clear inspiration for Steven Spielberg is called Sammy Fableman. I kept calling him mm. Steve while we were watching it because I sure. refused to acknowledge the discrepancy. Uh, so we loved this movie. It's quite long and a little self-indulgent at parts, but really, really wonderful. <laughs> and I am not a huge Steven Spielberg fan, I should say. I was a little skeptical about this movie, but had it recommended by uh, enough people whose taste I share that I was like, all right, I'll give it a shot. And I ended up really loving it. And uh, sometimes you just are down for a really feel-good cozy story about how beautiful it is to make art that you're passionate about. And that's very much what this is. It is, uh, it never shows Steven Spielberg as an adult. There's a, a lot of scenes of him as a very young child. And then as a teenager, uh, growing up as one of the only Jewish kids in his neighborhood, experiencing bigotry when he's older, but as a kid, uh, mostly just being a very anxious Jewish kid, which Dina could deeply relate to. I'll say there's, um, and just to give you guys a taste of what it, what it's like to watch, there's a very the very first scene is is him young young Stevie young Sammy watching a train crash in a movie his first time going to the movies and he becomes fixated on it and how scary mm -hmm. it was and then recreates it with his own toy trains in a series of absolutely adorable and eventually incredible scenes because he ends up filming it oh, and making a movie of the train crash as a child and it's just it's so cute and also incredible at the same time where you're like wow this is how he became really interested in making movies i don't know if that story is true i don't care it's a great movie <laughs> uh and the other thing i wanted to say um is that i feel like i watch a lot of biopics that are sad and like include some abuse that's happened to someone. And in this case, um, the parents are unhappy. They're in an unhappy marriage. But the depiction of that is very mundane and human and it does get sad, but I really liked watching a story about a family that had moments that were unhappy, but wasn't depicting that as like the be all end all horrific traumatic experience mm -hmm. and more just a series of events that happen to people who all really love each other and are really trying hard. I don't know. You know do you know what I mean? Like, it's not sure. like some horrific thing that they're all going through. It's more just they all love each other and they're trying, but sometimes they break each other's hearts. And that's very relatable. Uh, so I recommend it. The Fablemans. Good feel good movie. Very cozy stuff. Cool. Nice. I really want to see it. Check it out. Yeah, it's not too mawkish because that's like the Spielberg problem. A lot There's of the a, there was only oh. one scene that I thought that about, but I, I'll let you watch Good. it and make your own call. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's great. You to check it out too. Kirk, what's your one? Did you guys ever watch the um, West Side Story? Yes, I, I mean, I did. I talked about it on this show. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, my one more thing. What is my one more thing? Um, my <laughs> one more thing is speaking of movies that are the magic long of and, making long movies. and self indulgent. <laughs> I was going to say long and self indulgent, but also that I liked. Um, <laughs> I went and saw Avatar: The Way of Water in IMAX over the weekend with Emily, and had a really good time with the movies. So I <laughs> I wanted to share a couple of thoughts about it. So I am on the record as someone who enjoyed the first Avatar as well. I saw it in IMAX in 2009 in 3D and was like, wow, I can't believe 
how this movie looks. This is pretty incredible. And then um, 13 years passed, and a new one came out, and I went and saw it on IMAX, and I was like, wow, I can't believe how this movie looks. This is pretty incredible. Um, cool. So the, the main reason to see this movie, and I would suggest anyone with a passing interest go see it in theaters, is that it's so spectacular looking. Um, I saw it in regular frame rate in IMAX, which there are a number of different ways to see this. It was in 3D, but it was not in high frame rate. And I think it is interesting that the high frame rate treatment of this film is apparently um, variable. So dialogue scenes and a lot of other sequences are at 24 FPS. And then when it goes into action, it kicks up to 48 FPS. So you don't, presumably it reduces the weird uncanny valleyness of dialogue scenes at 48 FPS where it just looks like you're watching big weird actors. But then it makes the action more smooth. I don't know. I, I kind of want to go and see that um, in in theaters just because... You should. I've heard a lot about what that experience is like and how yeah. apparently it, it it feels really weird at first, but then eventually you're like, oh, no, I get yeah. why these scenes are mm-hmm. in a higher frame rate. Especially given how visually unbelievable the movie is, especially in the last hour, I can see how having more frames on screen would just be helpful because, I mean, even at 24 frames per second, it is just absolutely outrageous the things that you're seeing happen on screen. So I will just say, as a movie where every single shot, every frame is incredible looking, looks better than anything you've ever seen. Like, it's always something cool. It's always some huge blue person talking to some normal-sized person with, like, a cool screen in the background and some weird, beautiful setting. The guy, I mean, James Cameron knows how to make movies that look awesome, and he knows how to shoot action. But but how is the story? <laughs> mm. But the story, yeah, that's fine. It's like a very broad, it's a kind of a retread of the first movie. It's very broad, a lot of big emotions. It's a family story this time, so Jake and Natiri have kids, and they're family is sort of under attack by you know the the humans. you know jake and the terry the yeah, yeah, yeah. iconic iconic uh yeah, duo. jake sully yeah, yeah of course. jake sully the main character of avatar i don't yeah, know of yeah i mean i yeah, I, I know just... i do know his name i i'm a person who watched avatar a couple of times and i know the names of the characters no i watched it too i don't remember anything about also it. they say jake sully so many times in it jason i don't even know if you can joke around about not remembering his name the it's, only uh... thing i really remember <laughs> from the first movie is unobtainium Fair enough. Yes, which is no longer the the thing that the the humans are going after. They're going after something well, actually much more obtained. horrifying. So, anyways, <laughs> I really like this movie, and uh, everyone's already seen it. This movie is like doing really well. So, I just I wanted to share a couple specific thoughts, which are one. Um, Edie Falco is in this movie. She is fantastic. She's playing a human, not playing a Navi. And there's a scene early on where she's in a mech suit. Uh, and it's like the, one of those mech exoskeletons. It's a new one in this one, but it's kind of like the ones in the first one where like she moves her hands and then the big hands move like around her. And because it's Avatar, it looks unbelievable. Like in 3D, it looks like she's in this suit and you just kind of can't figure out how they even did it. And then she's sitting there looking at a screen, giving people a briefing and she's drinking a cup of coffee, but the mech suit is holding the cup of coffee and she's sitting there holding the cup of coffee and it's this big cup of coffee that's in the mech arm right above her regular arm but her regular arm is in the position that you are you know in when you're holding a mug and and I'm sitting there and I'm not even listening to what what she's saying because I'm just I'm like under my breath I'm just like come on drink from the coffee cup drink from the coffee cup and then at the very end of the scene she's like boom and she drinks from the coffee cup with her giant robot arm and it's amazing so That happens. Um, The other thing I wanted to shout out is Sigourney Weaver is absolutely wonderful in this movie. And I wasn't sure. I knew she was going to be in it. I didn't know who her character was going to be. And I I won't say too much, I guess, because it's it's kind of a lovely part of the movie. But she died, of course. Her character died in the first movie. 
And she returns as a teenage Navi in this. And so it's age-blind casting, I guess. Sigourney Weaver in her 70s is playing this, like, 15-year-old girl who is this kind of awkward blue teenager. And she's so good. The way they've recreated her in the film is amazing. It's not weird at all. I didn't find it to be, like, uncanny or strange. I just, her character is great and her performance is great. It still has her amazing voice. And so the whole movie, she plays a really central role. And she's just the key to the whole movie. Her and the whale. There's also a whale. But it's really great that anyone watching knows the whale is the other key to the movie. So Sigourney Weaver and the whale are a reason to see the movie. But then there's also a lot of amazing action and really it was a it was fun to go see a movie that was just like absolutely unbelievable looking just like a ravishingly beautiful visual feast for like three hours and to just sit there and be like well this is pretty cool i'm i guess i'm glad james cameron has infinite money to make these because i'll go to the next one too so yeah i i dug it it was a good time it's just it's so funny to me how much this movie is made and how little I've seen people actually like referencing anything from it or talking about it. Really? Like this is the common All I see is whale chat. But I guess it's just the world really? Oh my god, if you saw this whale you you'd understand. But I mean you're well, talking about it's... people here, like millions and millions yeah. of people have seen it. They're maybe not tweeting about it as much or maybe they are. I'm not even on Twitter. It's true. Maybe it's the specific internet spaces we each Occupy. Yeah, we're all in our own bubbles. Like you're no, in the non-avatar bubble. I'm hanging out in a lot of whale-centric clicks. It's true. Yeah, yeah. well, you're on the Reddit, sub, the the subreddit <laughs> yeah, for whales all the whale time. So I get it. Yeah. No, it's just it's just uh, this is an old chestnut, but the whole like critical impact versus commercial impact thing, and how or cultural impact versus commercial impact thing, and now like I don't know, even the fact that and I have nothing against this movie. I'm glad it's visually spectacular. I'm glad he gets to keep making them. I'm glad people are digging them. Um, it's just so funny to me that. Like, I haven't even seen a single, like, meme or quote from the movie the way that you normally would. Like, even the Fablemans, I've seen people, like, screen capping and memeing and oh, talking about Oh, yeah, the memes it. are really good. Yeah, <laughs> there's some like, good Fablemans the menu, <laughs> like, like, there's so many movies that come out, and I'm like, oh, okay, like, Tar, I've seen people, like, memeing that all the time, but mm-hmm. I haven't seen anyone talk about Avatar ever, other than to say, hey, this movie looks really good, and it's cool, I enjoyed it, which mm-hmm. is fine. It's just so weird for a blockbuster to occupy that space, um, especially in an era of, like, Marvel quips and stuff and everyone debating over what's the MCU is going to do next. And here's just a movie that's just like, hey, I'm James Cameron. I want to make cool looking shit. And that's it. Yeah, I think that speaks to the unique space that Avatar occupies. I mean, yeah, like, this is, too, is its yeah. own thing. When you see it, it does not feel like watching a Marvel movie or anything uh-huh. in that realm or a Star Wars movie. I mean, it is. It feels like watching <laughs> an Avatar movie. It feels or like a watching a movie. I mean, I'll, I can only speak to the first one. But yeah, it, it's. It is its own thing, and it only yep. exists in the theater in a way that I'm sure cinemas are very grateful for, given yeah. how much Avatar yeah, is making. cinemas need it. Okay, well, that is it for this week's episode. Just uh, a reminder, you can buy tickets to our live show in the show notes. Um, and we are very excited. Man, May 18th is going to be super fun. May 18th. Other than that, we will be back next week. See you guys then. Yeah, see you both next week. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. 
Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPods and email thetripleclick at MaximumFun.org and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.